0: All right, so if you've got a Bible, Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11 is our text this evening. Um, we may or may not get through the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses, not that long. There's quite a few things to talk about, of course. But we're going to look at the, uh, this chapter, which is the announcement of the 10th plague. The announcement of the 10th plague. And so the death of the firstborn is, of course, the plague that will... Uh, commence in chapter 12 and following. Uh, but the, the the announcement of the plague is what we're looking at here in this chapter. So here's our real simple thought flow. Uh, again, we'll see if we make it through all this this evening, but we're going to look at the setting to the announcement. I commented a little bit about that at the end of last week, if you recall, that uh, this is one of those places where it's a bit of an unfortunate chapter break uh, because it really ties well into the end of chapter 10. Uh, and sometimes with a chapter break, we, we just... Uh, mentally think that it's a change of scene, but it's not a change of scene. And so we'll talk about that, but we'll look at the setting of the announcement. We'll look at the, uh, the structure, purpose of the announcement, and then, of course, the significance uh, to the announcement. There's a lot packed into these 10 verses that are significant and warrant uh, note, observation, discussion, etc. cetera. So if you've got a Bible, let's read the section, and then we'll jump in, all right? But look at Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, "'Yet will I bring one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. "'Afterward, he will let you go hence. "'When he shall let you go, "'he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. "'Speak now in the ears of the people. "'Let every man borrow of his neighbor, "'every woman of her neighbor, "'jewels of silver and jewels of gold. "'And the Lord gave the people favor "'in the sight of the Egyptians. "'Moreover, the man Moses was very great "'in the land of Egypt "'and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, "'in the sight of the people.' And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even and the firstborn of the ma- uh, maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beast. <laughs> Where was I? No, I was here. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah all right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, it's all Warren's fault. No, no. Usually, (laughs) 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 testimony. (laughs) of your wife. My man, you're getting no slack this evening, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, where was it? Verse six. Here we go. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall there be any like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that you may know how that the Lord doth put a difference or a distinction between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these, uh, your servants, shall come down unto me and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out and all the people that follow you, and after that I will, let, I will go out. And he went out from, the, from Pharaoh in great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. All right, now, uh, let's talk first, as we jump into this chapter, the setting to the chapter, which... Uh, Like I said, this is one of those unfortunate chapter divisions that we see here in the Scripture. There's a number of those in the Scripture. Remember, chapter divisions themselves are not inspired. They came way later. But nonetheless, they're obviously a very helpful invention to help us find passages, etc. But sometimes they uh, jump right in the middle of a narrative and they can sometimes break up our mental flow but recognize that the, Moses here delivers the warning of the coming final plague while still in audience with Pharaoh at the end of the ninth plague all right so try to men- mentally put yourself back where we ended last time at the endth, the the uh, excuse me the end of the ninth plague we have Pharaoh call Moses and Aaron in Moses and Aaron you know have that exchange with Pharaoh but they're still in his presence when they give this announcement in in chapter eleven, and that becomes clear at the end of verse eight, when it says that it's there then, then that uh, Moses leaves Pharaoh in anger, and so again recognize that the speech by Yahweh to Moses that's recorded in this chapter may have occurred at a previous time, or it may have even happened in the moment uh, that Moses is standing before Pharaoh. In other words, it says in verse one, "The Lord said unto Moses, right." That may have happened in the very presence of Pharaoh, uh, or it may have been something that was given at a prior time, right? It was an an announcement that Moses and Aaron were equipped with. They just hadn't yet delivered to Pharaoh, right? But the point is, they're still in the presence of Pharaoh when uh, at the end of, you know, we we attach this to the end of chapter 10 and the the ninth plague, all right? So just recognize that that's the scene. And, Uh, So Moses, because remember, that's where it can get confusing. If you remember where we left off last time, at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh in anger says, get away from me and you will see my face no more. Remember that? And then Moses responds in verse 29 and he says, you have spoken well, I will see your, uh, your face again no more. But but then we read chapter 11, and he's still talking to Pharaoh. Well, it's still the same scene, all right? That's the point, is he hasn't yet left the presence of Pharaoh. Uh, but, of course, that's what he does in verse 8. Now, again, the, the structure of the announcement that uh, Moses and Aaron make here to Pharaoh is, is uh, pretty simple, but it's a bit repetitive from some material that we've already thus far seen. In other words, this the fancy word is pericope. Are you familiar with that term? It uh, just means a, an episode or a paragraph in a narrative flow, but a, uh, that's what a pericope means. So if you get into the reading of the commentary, literature, et cetera, you'll come across that term every once in a while. But this pericope, as it's called, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, has really a three-part structure, which you know, is pretty simple thought flow. Uh, and what we have here is the actual announcement of the death of the firstborn is given in the middle right that 's verses eight to, or four to eight that 's kind of the, the core of the chapter that 's the announcement that Moses and Aaron are there to deliver, but it 's carefully sandwiched between two uh, reminders of what has previously been revealed. In other words, verses one to three are repetitive we 've already seen God predict this, so this is repeat material. Uh, The first reminder that is given in this text, verses 1 to 3, is that the 10th plague would be effective at producing the Exodus. Right. In other words, this is the final plague. God makes that clear, that this is the final plague that will result in the Exodus itself. That Pharaoh will finally relent and and release the children of Israel and they will uh, exit Egypt in the Exodus but also that when they leave Egypt in the Exodus, that they will be financially rewarded. Recall, this has already been predicted. Back in the burning bush scene, uh, God alluded to this. In fact, uh, it's been mentioned a couple of times along the way. So here it is, it is rehearsed. That's not new information, but it is a reminder. The second reminder shows up in verses 9 and 10. That's the end of the chapter. That And the second reminder is that the whole series of prior plagues had not resulted in the Exodus because that was the way Yahweh had planned it all along. In other words, this is following the exact pattern that Yahweh has been predicting. And so those those two reminder portions of the chapter is is intentional. In other words, this surrounding of the new narrative material, the new information shows up in verses 4 through 8, surrounding that with Reminder material uh, helps orient the reader listener to the fact that the plague of the death of the firstborn is the climactic plague that will a- accomplish exactly what God has predicted. In other words, this is one of those one more of those examples. Remember, I, I camp on this every once in a while. That the original audiences would have most likely been hearing these passages read rather than reading them. Right? I mean, those. It was later that these copies were became more plenteous. Originally, we read about it in the book of Deuteronomy that most, you know, the, the law was often read publicly, uh, and it was, it was to be read regularly in public so that people could hear the Word of God. But not every family would have a copy of the Torah originally. So the point is, these narrative materials are, are written in such a way that if you are a listener right then it's, it, the whole point is it 's a recap it 's kind of giving you the information you already know, but it 's kind of it 's one of those seams in the story it 's a hinge in the story it 's helping you catch up to speed remind, reminding you of the key moments the key pieces of, of information you need to know before they jump into the next uh, part of the narrative and so this is a good example of that, but again, the whole idea is that as it 's re- reminding the audience of what 's coming it 's emphasizing that this idea. Uh, that this the tenth and climactic plague is about to happen, but it's happening exactly the way God predicted. So the function of this chapter is, of, of course, again to emphasize that God is always true to His word, whether it's His threats or His promises. God is always true to His word, and so He He mentions that He says, "Do you remember that thing? I, you know, I said about." gain wealth well it 's about to happen. Do you remember that I said that this was going to be the tenth and final plague well it 's going to happen in other words god 's simply reminding them of what he 's already said, so that when it happens it will be, you know he 'll be vindicated. Uh, not to get off on that tangent, but I was recently studying uh, upper room discourse. Uh, you were reading a lot of those chapters recently in the book of John and in John uh, thirteen Jesus makes mention of that he says I'm, I'm, he actually predicts the Tempt- or I'm sorry the uh, I about said temptation of Judas but when Judas betrays him he he predicts that and he, he actually tells the disciples why he's predicting it he says so that when it happens you won't be offended but you will know that this is the case this is the way it must be in other words the prediction this has the same function God's predicting what's going to happen so that when it happens God is vindicated his word is vindicated and so that hence the, the point of the repetition. But the significance of the announcement in, itself, this, this chapter gives us a number of things, and, and I've kind of singled about five things I want to discuss in the remainder of the hour that, that is really significant for us to pause and, and ponder for just a few moments as we contemplate this announcement uh, and, and the significance of these events that are about to transpire, uh, the events of the 10th and final plague. First, I just want to consider the plundering of Egypt. All right, that idea that they will gain wealth. It's been predicted a couple of times. Here, predicted, you know, it's reminding us, verses 1 to 3. So we'll talk about that. Second, uh, I want to talk about the significance of the plague occurring at midnight. It's specifically said to occur at midnight. And there's, there seems to be some cultural significance to that. Third, I want to talk about the angel of death. The angel of death. In other, in other words, the agent that carries this out. There is some debate on that. Uh, in, in fact, you know, who exactly is that? And so that's worthy of some, some uh, comments. Fourth, I want to talk about the death of the firstborn itself. In other words, why is this the, the final plague? Why is this the climactic plague? What is it about the death of the firstborn that was so devastating to Egypt that this is the thing that, that breaks, you know, this, this firm resolve that Pharaoh has had up till now? And then, of course, the reaction to the plague that is mentioned a couple of times in the text, that there will be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, verse 6, but not a dog will move its tongue against uh, Israel, verse 7. All right? So in other words, there's the, these are the, the elements of the announcement that make it theologically or, or from the perspective of theology or from the perspective of the narrative, it makes this announcement significant. All right? So let's first begin by that, considering the idea of the plundering of Egypt. All right, so reread verse 1 to 3. It says, The Lord says to Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, uh, he will let you go hence. When he will let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people. Let every man borrow of his neighbor, and every woman of her neighbor, jewels of silver, jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. In other words, this prediction of the plundering of Egypt is highly significant. And I I, I wanted you to contemplate at least five reasons, all right? Now, I mean, first, you tell me what comes to your mind. Why is this event of the plundering of Egypt significant? What significance do you see in it, all right? I'm going to highlight at least five things, but you'll probably get them all anyways. You guys are really good at this. But anything come to mind? Yep.
1: First thing I thought of was... um... These people have suffered a lot under Moses, and yet they willingly gave all this stuff to them, you know, like Mm -hmm. all the riches that they had. I don't know if it was just they were thinking in their mind this is a way to pay them off to get
0: rid of them or what, but it's kind of an unusual move by the Egyptian people. It is an unusual move, And, and it's even highlighted in the narrative in a unique way when it says that God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, right? In other words... How do we interpret this? Do we interpret this as a bribe, a payoff, or a gift right and and that but the word favor implies the idea of they actually there was a change of attitude when it comes to how the Egyptians viewed the Hebrews, yeah. which is huge when you think about it because when you go all the way back to chapter one, right, and this national you know campaign to demonize the Hebrew people, to enslave the Hebrew people you Know now it goes full circle to where they're favoring the Hebrew people, and that's that's dramatic. Yeah,
2: well, jumping ahead, but on verse 3, uh, I was looking at that, and it says that uh, Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt. Now, my understanding was that Moses had mostly been forgotten by both the hierarchy of, uh, of the Pharaoh's court and also by the people there when he was out. The In exile.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then he came back. So is, is this referring to his leadership through these plagues? Is that where he got this uh, steam? Or... Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't fit with the other context.
0: No, that's a great question. So everyone catch question. In other words, his impression was that Moses was forgotten during the period of the exile. So now he's come back, and he's greatly revered. Where did he get Where did that reverence come from? So you know, probably, I mean, because some will lean upon remember Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter seven does make a comment that Moses was mighty in words and deeds, you know in his career in Egypt before his exile. Uh, so maybe they do remember him, but I think the context is arguing that yeah, it's actually it's it's his. Role as the leader, you know, during these nine, soon to be tenth plague, that that's what has built such reverence and awe, you know, and fame, if you will, and fear that people have of Moses. Yeah, good question. Yeah.
1: Also, the the plundering, it was God's, anyways. I mean, Joseph helped. That, <laughs> yeah. You know, the,
0: yeah, I see where you're going with that.
1: Why all the fields? And that's right. From the,
0: you know. So the Just wealth him. of Egypt was largely due to, you know, Joseph. Joseph and his faithfulness.
1: They wouldn't have survived, probably,
0: without. You know, oh, that's good, that's good. So it was a way of justice and paying him back for, you know, due, due recompense, if you will. I
1: mean... God's ways are so much higher
0: than Reparations, reparations. <laughs> <laughs> right? I know it's a bad word right now, but, <laughs> 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 but reparations, like, yeah, right, yeah. Watch your mouth. No, just kidding. It's a dual thing. It also
1: saved the Israel, you know. They yep. went
0: down there. No, oh, that's that good. Room. That's good. That's good. Is there no handback? Reconciled oh. with
1: his
0: family. That's right. That's right. No, that's good. All right, because that'll be one of my points. That's excellent. Yes, sir.
1: The Hebrews had not a, a dime to their name, so they,
0: when they went into the wilderness they needed a deep gold and silver and precious jewels to build the tabernacle. Amen. Good, good. That's the point. Is God is is equipping them. Exactly, he's providing for them because he knows, God knows, that they're about to spend several decades in the wilderness, and they need to build a wilderness tabernacle. That's good. And this is the wealth with which they can build that and survive that time period. And Excellent. God's in it. And everything's God's anyways. That's right. Amen. That's good. That's good.
2: I was thinking, when Israel finally saw that they weren't being bothered by the plagues, they began to see some kind of connection between Moses and God. And that Moses must really have an inroad. Hmm. And so you sort of respect people who have this great authority. Hmm. Sometimes they don't deserve it. (laughs) Yep. They have this authority that seems to come from someplace else, and it's it's awesome.
0: Absolutely. So I'm worried that part of it. Absolutely.
2: The the esteem in the eyes of the Egyptians is because even if you don't really respect some authority as such underneath, be saying he's really not a good authority figure. But look what he's doing. Right,
0: right. Just in has, awe of his accomplishments. <coughs>
2: Moses is really
0: a great God, but rather a great guy. But look who, look what happens when he does stuff. Right. When he speaks. No, that's good. That's good. And there will be, and it's later in chapter 14, but there is an equivalent phrase where the the Israelites began to fear Moses. You know, because like you said, that's this one specifically talked about the Egyptians' reverence for mm-hmm. Moses, but the Israelites will also have learned that same reverence, mm-hmm. and it actually uses the term fear. You know, mm-hmm. did you have a hand up? No? Oh, somebody had a hand up. Okay, go ahead. So I was thinking, too,
3: because of the uncleanness, they couldn't go to their temples and give sacrifices and gifts to their gods to ask for a way out. So they may just be taking those to Moses to basically sacrifice to that god, since that god seems to be still available.
0: No, oh, that's interesting. Almost as a, as a token of faithfulness to Yahweh, mm-hmm. you know, saying, hey.
3: Here's my prayers. Here, yeah.
0: Here, go ahead. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. So out of a fear of Yahweh, they're actually you know, showing some devotion there rather than to their gods. That's an interesting thought, Elena. I was thinking maybe kinda goes this, God has just And the last one is like wealth and god for people. That's a powerful thought, yeah. So he's already humiliated their whole pantheon, right? But yeah, exactly. So now he's gonna take their carefully hoarded wealth, right? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thought. Amen. I like it. All right. So I think he hit most of them. Let me let me file through them real quick. So at least five reasons why I think this is significant, uh, and and y'all even shared a couple shades of thought that that are beyond these five. I think, but. First, it displays God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Recall, we've made a big deal of this in past studies, but in Genesis 15, verse 14, he declared that his people, God, that is, declared that his people would come out from Egypt with great possessions. So this is a, by this time, almost 600-year-old or just over 600-year-old promise that God made to Abraham. All right, so God is true to his word. He's faithful to his promises because he said that he would do this back in Genesis 15. Secondly, it displays God's justice as a material judgment on Egypt for having enslaved the people of God for over 400 or four centuries, 400 years. In other words, Egypt, you know, they're, they're stripped of their wealth, right? They're humiliated. And in a sense, this is just because they have, they, they, you know Israel was forced into servitude, and so this is God depriving egypt. It's a punishment for Egypt in a sense. Third, it displays god's sovereignty, that just as God controls Pharaoh by hardening his heart, and we see this at the, again mentioned at the end of the chapter verse ten, but just as God controls Pharaoh by hardening his heart, the Lord causes the Egyptians to show favor to the Hebrews. And again, the, the verse literally says, he gave the people grace in the sight of the Egyptians, right? And there's what Simone was pointing out. Is it's a pretty dramatic reversal in the narrative to go from a hatred, oppression of the Hebrews to a, you know, they have grace in the eyes of the Egyptians. Like God literally reversed the popular, you know, opinion of uh, the Egyptians toward Israel. And that's a display of God's sovereignty, Next, it also displays God's grace. Uh, again, I think Dave pointed this one out, but God's plan was to provide his people with the financial wherewithal to survive as a nation on the move until they arrived at and settled in Canaan. And so this is, of course, uh, an important part of this, God's provision, which includes the, the means by which they will build the wilderness tabernacle later. Uh, yeah?
2: I, I was thinking this is a really powerful image. It's the image of a conquering army who's gone into a country and conquered them, and, bought, and then they leave with all the treasures, all and the everything, spoils and, the war. and all the uh, animals, and everything, Amen. and they leave that the conquering army,
0: it's, that's really it's good.
2: a really strong, strong image there.
0: Did you all hear that? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent point, it's just the military overtones here are profound, right? I mean, when you think about the wealth of Egypt, much of the wealth of Egypt, I mean, yeah, there was obviously great, we've talked about it, great innovations they had with agriculture and that sort of thing, but much of the wealth of Egypt, they got by plundering other nations. It's They were a military might. But remember, God said that, you know, they're not going to release you except by a mighty hand, a mightier show of power. And the idea is that God has, Yahweh God has humiliated the Egyptian nation, the Egyptian pantheon. And this is a powerful image of a conquering people, right? But there's the irony, right? They're slaves, but they're walking out now with the spoils of war. They are the victors to whom go the spoils, right? And didn't even have to fight. They're watching God do all this. You got a hand up, DeLa? Yeah. That's right. They're telling them to get out with haste, right? And they're even paying them off. Right. <laughs> no, that's good. Was there another hand up? Here's yep. Your gas money. <laughs> yeah. All right. There's your gas money for the trip. Right. Go get a happy meal No. Yeah, and then we'll go over.
1: Well, some of the Egyptians went with them, right? That's right. So, like the lower class, the but they gave all to follow Yahweh. Yep. The early Christian church. I mean, people. And they made, most of them didn't have much, but they sold all their possessions and laid it at, you know, the apostles' feet and said, whatever God has for us will do. That's
0: good. Good. So a um, sign so of almost what? Faith. Yep. You devotion to Yahweh.
1: Yeah, devotion. And yeah. some, I mean, everything falls Because God said it was going to happen, but also, you know, the nation of Israel was Mm -hmm. also to display God's grace to the whole world. Amen.
2: It's good. Maybe a foreshadowing of Ruth, she left her home and left everything to go with Naomi. Mm -hmm. And these folks were were leaving Egypt to go with uh, the Hebrew people.
0: That's good. That's good. Y'all catch that? But like the idea of the Egyptians that leave with the Israelites foreshadowing what Ruth would later do, forsake her people and her nation in order to identify with the people of God. It's us get Elisa, and then we'll come here, and then Thad. Yeah, go ahead, Elisa. So I was
3: thinking of the reparations, and what that is such a huge topic right now, is because there are laws being passed right now to pay back descendants of people who were enslaved. Mm-hmm. People are upset with that, right? Because the actual people that would received this money were never enslaved.
0: But here we're looking at reparations in a completely different way. These people were enslaved. Yeah, these were the enslaved they people. Are getting justice immediately yeah. For what happened
3: to them over 400 years. That's good.
0: That that's right. Excellent. And that's a good distinction to make. Right, yeah. The modern, I mean, we were joking about it earlier, but the modern view of reparations is, yeah, it's a very, it's not justice. It's not justice. That's right. That's right. But this is, right, in, in the book of Exodus, what we're seeing. Uh, what are we going to say? And then we'll go to that.
1: So many times God does this, and you know He He leads His army, but He is the one that does the fighting, not the army. Amen. And it happens over and over and over again, and this is just on a major scale. But that's right. It happens all through Canaan when, when they get
0: there. Amen. That's right. I know. I know Ward's not with us because he's still sore, but you know, uh, but he's teaching through Joshua, right? I mean, like all the examples through Joshua, you Maybe know, Jericho, judges. You know, I mean, it, they oh, man. They just blew their horns. That's right. That's it. That's all they did. <laughs> and went for walks. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They went for a walk and tuned their horn. You know? <laughs> right? And God brings down Jericho. Amen. Amen. Dad? I was just wondering,
1: uh, when they settle in the land, where the Egyptians that come with them end up? Um, and if you can trace back and find some traces of Egyptian.
0: hmm Oh, you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, uh, so I have to double check, but there there's some debate on it. But Shamgar, the judge, uh, is there's a particular word that is used of him that is uh, believed to be a reference to his Egyptian blood. That he may well have been. There's a debate whether he himself was actually Egyptian and you know in Israel at the time, or he was an Israeli that was part Egyptian. Um, so there's that. There's there's another place. I have to double-check. I think it's the book of, boy, I want to say Ezra, that traces the genealogies of some of the people groups that were associated with service at the temple uh, that, that may well have some Egyptian blood. Um, and then the only other one I can think of off the top of my head is a bad example. But mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's remember the, uh, the dude that gets stoned because he... Uh, in the wilderness because he broke the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, because he had an Egyptian mom, I think, or it was dad. I forget if it was his mom. Well He had some Egyptian parentage as well. But, but I, that's a great question. You have to trace that a little more carefully. Those are just the ones that could come to my mind. Yeah, it says. Uh, was, or was he part community. He was something else, right? Because he was a half breed. Yeah. But I don't. He was not Egyptian. I don't think. I'm trying to remember. He was a half breed, though, because Caleb means dog. Like his name means dog. And, that, and it's not a flattering title, <laughs> you know, in antiquity, right? I mean, it's not like today, right? <laughs> but yeah, I've double checked. I don't think that was Egyptian, but you're right. He was a half breed.
1: Okay. I could be wrong, but for whatever reason, my mind was thinking he was half
0: Midian. Midianite, maybe? Yeah, I've double checked that. Because he was a half-grade, I just don't remember the other half. Yes, ma'am.
3: Would they have just been adopted then into the tribes for inheritance? Because otherwise they wouldn't have an inheritance, yet they would be fighting alongside them.
0: So there are different categories, and we'll talk about it a little bit, in fact, uh, in the end of chapter 12 and in chapter 13. There are different categories within the nation. In other words, you all hear a question, what happened to those Egyptians that go with... The Hebrews, in other words, do they become Hebrews? Do they are they just adopted into the clan, you know, some clan somewhere? That does happen on occasion, right? So, for instance, Rahab, right, the harlot, uh, Jericho, she is just brought right into the Hebrew nation and she becomes Hebrew. Ruth, another example of that. Um, We have several examples of that, but we also have we'll have categories in the book of Exodus. Uh, even and then later on the law, where it describes the difference between a, a ger is the Hebrew term, but it 's a foreigner that is living in the midst of Israel, so they never officially become israeli they don't you know associate uh you know with the nation as far as ethnicity or uh there's some debate on religion um like they, they don 't necessarily become religiously Israeli or Worshipping Yahweh, but they do reside within the nation, so they're resident aliens. Does that make sense? So, so undoubtedly, some of them maintained that status. So I'm sure that was a mixed bag. You know, some would be adopted in, that would just be integrated fully into Hebrew society by intermarriage, etc. Um, some would probably remain distinct. Yeah.
2: It's, it's kind of like I heard today: is it, if you've uh, lived in Nevada for 20 years? Do so you moved here,
0: then you're officially a Nevada? You're a Nevadian? Does it take twenty years? Oh man, I'm only like eight. Okay. Dog on it. No Yeah, Gabriel. I was I the Egyptians were kind of like, oh, maybe Exactly. And I think you're exactly right. I think that's why there were many Egyptians that left and went with the Hebrews. It's because of that very thing. They were they revered the God of the Hebrews when they saw that all their gods were worthless. That's good. That's absolutely right, my man. So, also, I want to point this out. All right? I, um, I think this is profound, but I think this plundering of the Egyptians, uh, particularly the idea of them finding, you know, the Hebrews having grace in the eyes of the Egyptians, also displays what we've talked about this a couple of times in the last couple, three weeks. But it displays Pharaoh's loss of reality. In other words, these verses bring strongly to the reader's attention a sense of the psychological distance that had developed between Pharaoh and the rest of the Egyptians. In other words, we've made this point a couple times how Pharaoh seems to have been insulated, perhaps, from the worst of the plagues, right? Do you remember just in the last chapter, his people, chapter 10, verse 7, are pleading with him to like, just let Israel go. Do you not realize the land is being destroyed, right? In other words, it seems like Pharaoh's hard heart and, you know, has brought on a blindness even where he's not fully recognizing the, the, all the destruction that's happening. It's just his stubborn pride that's refusing to relent. But it, it, there seems to also be this major gap between Pharaoh's hard heart and hatred to the common Egyptian has totally shifted gears, right? Like they actually are now viewing the Israelis with awe and favor and grace. And so it, it all the more accentuates, you know, that idea. Does that make sense? I think it's pretty profound. All right, so um, again, the, this just to elaborate on that for just a second, but the Egyptians in general had had come to respect the Hebrews, presumably out of part of, uh, partly out of fear, partly out of pragmatism. But nonetheless, they saw Pharaoh's policy of continued resistance to the Exodus for what it was, a fanatical and destructive stance that was doing nothing but harm. And so the Egyptian people, again, in in virtually uniform consensus among the Egyptians, was that the Israelites were entitled to leave Egypt and that their God had shown himself fully capable of ruining the country if they were not allowed to do so. And so the only person who could not yet see this was Pharaoh himself right? That's what this, this passage with the favor that uh, they have in the eyes of the Egyptians, it, it's, it's all the more ev- evidencing that. All right. So any other thoughts on that before we, we move off the, again, the plundering of Egypt thing? I think it's profound. There's so many angles to think about that. And I like all these, this is a good discussion. I like that conquering hero idea, the, the plundering of the nation. There's just so many rich ideas. Yeah, Becky. Was it a
3: cultural thing too back then the some
0: kind? Um, no, that's a good that question. A
3: way
0: of giving them, like, we're releasing you, maybe? Yeah, well, so that's a good question. It does show up in the law. So that's commanded in the book of Exodus, and it does become Jewish law, that when a Jewish slave could, you know, because remember, a Jewish slave can only work six years, and then they would be released the seventh. But he says, when they are released, they will not be released empty-handed, but that you equip them, yeah, with what they need to go out. Now, that, I'd have to double-check that. I I don't know if that was necessarily true in Egyptian culture or, you know, even ancient Near Eastern culture at large. But that does become Hebrew culture, right? Well, at least law, because it doesn't always do that. Remember the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet condemns the nation because they weren't doing that. They were oppressing the slaves and just taking advantage of them. And then when, you know, they were done, they let them go without any, you know, monetary blessing. And God was condemning them for that. Yeah. Good question. Yeah.
3: So when you read that, too, when that law is stated, it is directly followed with, because when you left Egypt... That's right. That's right. So it was directly related related back to this.
0: That's exactly right. And and I haven't done a, a full count, but it does show up in a number of laws where God makes a law, and then his reason for that law, he says, is because... I brought you out of the land of Egypt, or because you were slaves in the land of Egypt, or because, in other words, he's reminding them of this period, of their slavery. And he says, don't repeat that oppression, right? Yeah.
2: <clears throat> I was just reading in Numbers where one of the phrases God used uh, He said, and I destroyed for your sakes the gods of Egypt.
0: That's right. And I'm Amen. And
2: that was also what the other man to, was referring to, people's gods. That's right.
0: Amen. That's right. That's good. Yeah, and don't, and, and we've tried to, you know, remember that throughout, but don't lose sight of that. Exactly what Diana said is this is a big point of the Exodus is God is humiliating the gods of Egypt. And he says that explicitly. I destroyed, I destroyed the gods That's the, the numbers passage, right? Yeah. So we'll talk about that a little bit more because it's it's explicit in Exodus twelve, verse twelve. Mm-hmm. And then he he does. He makes another big comment about that in, in Numbers, a couple of places in the book of Numbers, I think. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly where. On the 30th
3: chapter. Somewhere
0: I am. Okay. Right around the 30th chapter in the book of Numbers. <laughs> but it uses that language. He destroyed the gods of the Egyptians. That's right. Amen. And that's really the whole point is God is building his resume. All right. So let's, let's, let's talk about this, again, out of the, the five different significant points. We got through one, all right? And we got 12 <laughs> minutes left. So let's see if we can get through one more, and then we'll pick them up next time, all right? But let's talk about the second one is not only the plundering of Egypt, but the plague occurring at midnight. In other words, when the announcement is given, look at verse 4. It says, And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt. Again, it's it's explicit in the announcement that the timing to the coming plague is especially indicated by the text. And this timing is significant uh, as uh, at least a couple of different ways. First, I think it it serves as a polemic against Egypt, yet it is also, in a sense, uh, a show of grace at the same time. In other words, when that word polemic, don't forget, the word polemic just means an attack. It's a theological attack that God is doing this because, again, what we just talked about is he's trying to humiliate the gods of the Egyptians. So he's going to attack at a particular point because uh, he's trying to make a theological point in order to humiliate these gods. Yeah, so stick with me. Yes, so... Nighttime was again. Don't don't forget this. But nighttime was an especially fearful time for the Egyptians, and we have, for instance, uh, and this is from Egyptologists have uncovered this. But the hymn to Atan, the author describes this is Egyptian, by the way, it describes the dread of night because the sun god has departed to the underworld and is no longer protecting the Egyptians. All right, so there is the Egyptians in particular felt very vulnerable during the night for that very reason. Uh, for the Hebrews, on the other hand, there was no fear because, at least there shouldn't have been, right? Because Psalm 121.4 will later say that he who protects or keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, right? Yahweh's awake, working, sustaining, protecting his people. Yahweh can work at night, right? It doesn't have to merely be the daytime, uh, as many of the Egyptians believed of their gods. Um, and so that, that in and of itself is, is a polemic against Israel. But I think there's also another side to this that, uh, that again, Stuart, one of the commentators, points out, is that the causing of, of the death of so many Egyptians was indeed a severe punishment, but allowing them to die quietly in their sleep was an act of grace. In other words, you know, there's, there's going to be thousands, tens of thousands, right? I don't, I don't, we don't put a number on it. We don't have a number on it. But there's going to be a lot of people dying uh, this, this night, and yet to do it at night is, in a sense, an act of grace, right? That they experience the, the angel of death in just the, the moments of their sleep. And so that in and of itself, uh, I think Stuart has an interesting observation there. But that also brings us to, can we do it? The third point that I want to talk about, <laughs> namely the angel of death, all right? Uh, this one, this will take the rest of our time to be sure, but This, the angel of death, there's a bit of debate on this because the personal involvement of Yahweh here in this text is obvious. Uh, When you compare it to a number of other passages, there's a bit of a question mark as to who the the angel of death is. But notice it says explicitly in verse 4, he says, thus says the Lord about midnight, will I go out into the midst of Egypt? All right, so the personal involvement of Yahweh... Uh, represents a further heightening of the severity of the plagues. Like in other words, he's been using, you know, intermediate agents, different things like weather patterns or locusts or whatever. But now he's saying, I myself will go out into the land of Egypt. So unlike all the other plagues, this time the Lord himself would march through the land of Egypt. According to verse 4, there would be no secondary causes like a strong east wind or whatever. So there, that is again, a heightening in the intensity there even seems to be a bit of a, a word play when he says, I'm going out through the land of Egypt. Again, that is actually the word for Exodus. Uh, so it's kind of fun, right? He's going to say later, right? He's going to bring the children of Israel out. Uh, but here, he, God is going out. And so uh, the point is, there's kind of a wordplay because Pharaoh would not let God's people go out of Egypt. God will go out in the land of Egypt. And destroy uh, the children of Israel, or the the firstborn children, and so there's some interesting significance to that. Um, but and, and and I think, I mean, we don't have time to work through a ton of these other passages. Uh, but what's fascinating is you compare this. You know, there's there's I'd like to probably give a whole lecture to this later about the angel of the Lord. Right. We uh, we see that character show up a couple dozen times in the Old Testament really important Old Testament character uh, but the the question mark is who is this angel of death? is it a is it Yahweh himself right in other words it, or you could even get more specific the angel of the Lord is it God the Father or God the Son or is it just a, an angel that God uses for this specific task right um, there's there's different passages even that will, especially in the Psalms, Psalm 78, Psalm 106, where it describes this event in retrospect. Uh, it uses you know, language that's a little bit different, but the, the, the question is ultimately you know, settled by the fact that God, whether he used, it was you know God the Father, God the Son, or an angel specifically authorized by God to carry this out, the point is God himself is the one that's taking you know, the credit for this. Right, he's saying this this was me. I went through the land of Egypt. And so that's that's the point of the heightening of the plague. All right. But um and, you know, any, any thoughts on that? any questions on that? I know we have yeah. I was just thinking, but I, kind of I was just reading about the David members the people of Israel. Yes, characters and the choices that he chooses
2: to plague. hmm And like they can see the angel like, Right. So
0: right it seems to me that they could see the angel at that point and i wonder if it was kind of the same no that's a great question and, and you know the text here isn't as clear right because it's happening it says at midnight there's less of a visual you know description of it, it it'll just say uh, and i got to look at the actual verse you know cuz it says again in, in chapter 12 verse now it's still a prediction verse 23 it says the lord will pass through uh, to smite the Egyptians, when he sees the blood upon the lintel and the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and not suffer the destroyer. See, there's one of those passages we'll talk about more there, but I mean I brought it up. But there, there's this is why there's some debate on this. Is it says the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians, but then once he sees the you know the blood on the door, he says he won't allow the destroyer to go in. So who is that? Like, is this the same individual, you know, same personage, or are there, you know, is it God the Father and God the Son at work? Is it, you know, or the destroyer, is it an angel? Because when you go to Psalm 78, Psalm, you know, 105, 106, it uses the word angel, right? But it's like, so there's, there's, but again, it's kind of like, ooh, you know, there's some debate there. What did it look like? It was green mist. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah, right. I saw it. I saw the movie. Really. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but that's a good question. What would this look like? I don't know. You know, because when we do see it in David's day, it's clear. It's an angel standing atop right the, the the top where the temple would later be built, and he's and his sword is extended over Jerusalem, and he's sitting on the knob of the hill just north of Jerusalem, and it's like. You know, man, what but what did it look like here? And I I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't give us that visual you know, what, what it visually would have looked like. Or was it you know, was there a visual? Right I mean, was it God in spirit form? Why
2: would that angel be different there than he is later when he's standing over Jerusalem? It would seem like they would have the same
0: Well, that's the debate is because, you know, it's like because you have several times the title the angel of the Lord, which, you know, like I said, I'd like to give a whole lecture to that. Uh, it shows up a couple times later in the book of Exodus, which I, you know, I am personally persuaded that that's probably a reference to the second member of the triune Godhead, uh, you know, the angel of the Lord when we have the definite article attached to it in the Old Testament. Um, but is that dis- different than the destroyer, you know, in, in Exodus twelve twenty three, you know? Or exactly, or the angel of death. Is that a specific angel? Exactly, exactly. That is, that's his job. He's designated as the angel of death, right? I mean, that's, there's a debate on that um, because, because you read these different passages and, it, and it's not always, you know, super clear. In fact, I got just a couple minutes, uh, not much, but let's go to Psalm 78. Let me just show you a couple of these references real quick, since we're on the topic And then, uh, you know, you can scratch your head along with the rest of us. But Psalm 78, verse 49, remember Psalm 78, Psalm of Asaph, he's recording, rehearsing the history of Israel. But notice the way he he, uh, describes it in verse 49. It says, he, God, cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending, and this is actually in the plural, but it says evil angels among them. All right, so there's your uh, your other way of phrasing it. Look now at Psalm 105. So go to, stay in the Psalter. Just go to Psalm 105. We're going to see a similar Psalm where it's rehearsing the history of Israel. But look at Psalm 105, verse 36. <clears throat> And again, you have to read backwards in the context, but it's talking about God. The he, at the beginning of verse 36, is God. It says, and he smote all the firstborn in their land, the chief of all their strength. We're going to come back to that next week because I, I find that verse very significant when we're studying the, what is the significance of the firstborn dying. Well, here they're called the chief of their strength. That's a really important concept. Uh, we'll develop that next time because we're out of time for tonight. But else. Yeah, go ahead. In,
2: uh... There's a note that says, literally, in verse 49 of 78, it says, a deputation of angels of evil.
0: Yeah, a deputation.
2: Is their action, or are they really evil
0: angels? Right. That would
2: be the question that comes come to my
0: mind. Sure. Well, and that's the other thing, is like, because some will say, you know, we're these angels of, you know, evil, and or evil angels. Right? In other words were they demonic spirits that god was allowing to to do their thing well, I'm the or in front of the
2: in front of the garden of Eden with their swords and fire i mean they could do evil to you, you
0: exactly right evil exactly because that's the other way of doing it is t- uh-huh. to do evil means to do harm uh-huh. right and, and another, it's it's a, another way of saying they can do harm to you uh-huh. exactly so that's what i mean like when you read the various passages you're like hmm you know, ultimately, if God used, you know, a, uh, an angelic spirit in the process, the whole point of Exodus 11 and 12 is that God is claiming ultimate, you know, its, it's ultimate responsibility lies with him, right? Does that make sense? But he's targeting, and, this, and we'll have to get into this next time, but he's targeting particularly the firstborn. So I would encourage you, you know, between now and next week, if you you know have some spare time, right? Because right? we all have lots of that, but... But if you have spare time, then do some research into that. And and I would suggest to you, you know, that that uh, passage here in Psalm 105 where it talks about the firstborn being the chief of all their strength. In other words, what was the significance of God taking the life of the firstborn in particular? Like what what would have been so devastating to uh, to Egypt? Why was that, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will? And Pharaoh finally relents, you know, and lets them go. All right.
2: Mm-hmm. Those are,
0: his, they are That's totally right. Onto him. That's right. So it's a, the, the opposing kind of concept, isn't it? Or yep. Egypt and Absolutely. And that's, that, and that's one, one of the points of significance. And it and it was not only Hebrew culture, but even Egyptian culture. Highly significant. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay.
1: of the
0: family name that's right the right of primogeniture that's right double inheritance and they became the rulers yep yep. Yep. and that's really the core idea I think is the fact that that was the next generation of Egyptian leadership right I mean that was the backbone of Egyptian society Mm -hmm. and God takes it all away in a single night mm-hmm. that would have been devastating to that society
3: that's
1: right their
0: class. that's right yeah don't think it was all babies yeah. that's right now these there several would have been like that full-grown adults yeah. active productive adults leaders in the society the child, was coming this, the next day, well. yep that's right yeah, all right. Aren't you glad there was a Passover? Right? Yeah, right. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> Amen. All right. So next time we'll come back, we'll, we'll kind of finish some of those thoughts, wrap it up, and then we'll finish chapter 11. And then, boy, get ready. Chapter 12 is really rich with uh, you know, a lot of narrative material, theological content, you know, with the, the actual Passover itself, richly you know, important material. But we are out of time for tonight. So let's close in prayer. We'll thank the Lord, and then we'll dismiss. Father, we thank you for the time tonight. Lord, we're so eager to know more of, of you and your word, to study in order to show ourselves approved, as Paul told to Timothy. But Lord, ultimately, that we would get a, a greater glimpse into your person, your glory, that we would have an awe of you that you command us to have, that we can only gain as we look into your word, as we comb through the scriptures and we look carefully at your uh, your nature, your character, your mighty deeds, that, Lord, we would come to, to revere you, that, as was mentioned tonight, that we would see the, the bankruptcy of all false gods, false deities, uh, even our own carefully hoarded wealth, that we would recognize that none of these things save, none of these things... Uh, ultimately work, but it's it's only you. You are the one true and living God. Might that be something that we profoundly realize and live by. So Lord, we, we pray your blessing as we go our separate ways this evening, that you would bring us back together to fellowship, to study, to learn together next week as we continue to this studying this passage. Lord, we pray your blessing in all of this, and we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Amen.